Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show with your host, Scott Fullerton, as we discuss everything under the rainbow sun, from LGBT issues to foodies, entertainment to books. Join us as we talk to some of the most interesting leaders and celebrity LGBT guests and allies on the internet. So grab a cocktail, it's always happy hour somewhere, and enjoy the show. Now, here's your host, Scott Fullerton. Well, howdy, 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 everybody. Welcome to the Left of Straight Show. It is Thursday, June 11, 2020, and I am your host, Scott Fullerton. Thanks so much for tuning in, guys. I really appreciate it. We're almost at the end of a great week. Uh, The weekend is here, which is actually starting to mean things again, we hope. Uh, Maybe we can keep it up as long as we don't see a spike returning in COVID between everything going on out there, but we're going to hope for that. Uh, I hope you guys have had a fantastic week. I've loved our shows all week long. If you've missed any of them, please go to your favorite podcast distributor and go ahead and download them. You can go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher, Blog Talk here, of course, all the main ones. And if you can, just go ahead and hit that little subscribe button. That way you'll never miss one. You can download them Whenever you feel like it, they'll always be there for you. Yesterday's show was fantastic. We had a little Pride Pop Culture Minute by our friends at J&J Buzz. That's Josh and Jeff out of Nashville, Tennessee, my special correspondents. Then I talked live to Sam Knight. He's an amazing LGBTQ ally who does uh, wellness training, fitness training, and meditation training. And we even had a little meditative five-minute meditation practice that Sam led for us last night. So if you missed that, it's very cool. I'm going to cut that out and send that out on social well because it's a very good meditation. And after him last night, I had a great interview with Glenn North. Glenn is an actor and a fitness trainer himself. He's currently seen every Monday night on Bravo Television on Camp Getaway as one of the social directors there. Just a really great guy. So two great conversations yesterday, plus our Pop Culture Minute. Go check that out. Tonight, in just a little bit, we're going to start off with a Mental Health Minute by our special correspondent, Stephanie Schroeder. And she is going to be discussing all the Black Lives Matter things that are going out there and give a lot of great resources that we are connecting on the website here as well. If you go to the Left to Straight website, all the information will be up there tomorrow for you. So be sure to check that out as you listen to Stephanie here tonight. And then two more amazing interviews. We're going to start it off after Stephanie with astrologist Colin Bedell calling in. He is a fantastic astrologer, specializes in LGBTQ. He's written a book about it, two other books about astrology in general. And we had a fantastic conversation the other day. So this is going to be a pre-taped interview with him that I really, really enjoyed. 
And then I'm finally going to get to an interview I actually pre-taped maybe three weeks ago with Kelsey Zip. Kelsey is an amazing ally herself to the LGBTQ community. She lives up in Toronto, Canada. She is actually an on-set teacher for young actors on such sets as Lock and Key from Netflix, um, American Gods on Stars. A lot of great shows. She has helped uh, teach those young actors and actresses. And she has an amazing stories of her entire teaching life. Plus, she is the wife of an entertainment reporter, Tanner Zipchin, we've had on the show a couple weeks back as well. And she does a lot of his PR and kind of behind the scenes, making sure Tanner looks good. And the two of them are an amazing super couple entertainment. So it's great to have Kelsey on. She will be on on the second part of the show today. So we'll start that on in just a second. Do want to do a couple quick news items that's relying, uh, relating to COVID. Um, right here, and you know I'm from Northeast Ohio here. We had a Ohio medical director, Dr. Amy Acton. She comes from my area of Youngstown, living in Columbus as the Ohio medical director. She's been on the television and radio every day with our governor, Mike DeWine, giving COVID updates since the very beginning. She was in on this very early, helped shut Ohio down, helped keep our cases to a minimum, do a fantastic job. And you know me, Democrat through and through. I was giving Mike DeWine big props for this entire COVID thing as a Republican governor. And a lot of that had to do with Dr. Amy Acton really kind of leading the charge. Well, Ohio is, they say it's a purple state. It really is more and more a red state lately. And the people of Ohio and the government of Ohio, the government of Ohio, the state legislature is Republican controlled in both houses. They have supermajorities in both houses. And they were putting together um, legislation to overturn a lot of Amy's actions. And Dr. Acton has had protesters at her house um, yelling at her to open up Ohio. They didn't like Ohio Coast. These same people that were protesting in front of her house to get haircuts and everything are not found at any of the Black Lives Matter protests. So Dr. Amy Acton resigned today as Ohio Medical Director, effective immediately. So it's a very sad day in Ohio for COVID. She's still going to work on COVID in another capacity under DeWine, but she has got so much grief from especially the Republican legislature, state legislature here in Ohio, but also from everyday citizens petitioning her house or protesting her house. So she stepped down today, which is very sad. And just kind of related thing, we have the Dow Jones stock of your stock person down 1,800 today due to worries of reemergence of COVID because people are not paying attention to, as things are reopening. Uh, and Trump, bless his little heart, said that uh, even though COVID's fine going away, he is going to make he's going to start his rallies again, a very tone deaf rally. Uh, in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, next week, the site of a huge massacre of black people over 99 years ago, and also uh, just uh, just so tone deaf. Anyway, he is going to make anyone that comes to his future rallies sign waivers that, hey, you possibly could get COVID-19 here, so you can't sue us if you get it. So while trying to deny it and not talk about the disease, he's making anyone that goes to his rallies 
sign a release that if you catch COVID while you're there, you're not going to sue the Trump campaign. So ridiculous stuff. Just, I don't even, can't even deal. I got to tell you, I can't even deal with it. But those are the things that kind of stuck in my craw today. Let's go ahead and get ready here for a mental health minute with Stephanie. It's so great to have her on every other week. And she brings some great insights. Uh, working in the field herself as an editor for a book on mental health for the LGBTQ community and um, working through her own issues with mental health as well. So I'm going to let Stephanie take it away here. We're going to have her mental health book. Stephanie, welcome back to the show. Well, thanks, Scott. I really appreciate how you uh, went off the air last week uh, saying that other voices than yours needed to be heard. Um, I really appreciate that. You're very welcome. Thanks. I thought it was important to do at the time, so I appreciate that. And it was important. Um, and I also noted uh, in something that you posted, I think on Instagram, that where you're located near Columbus, Ohio, has declared racism a public health crisis. Yeah, exactly. They have uh, in Columbus, Ohio. I posted that because Youngstown, which is where I'm a little closer, is about two and a half hours from Columbus. Youngstown City Council is considering that right now for emergency legislation. Cleveland and Columbus both have already passed it, and one other county is looking at it. So that's very nice. encouraging, yes. Yeah. yeah, and racism is a public health crisis, um, and this is true before George Floyd's death, murder, galvanized rebellion across the nation, and it also remains true today, and hopefully it won't for a long time, but that's how it is right now. And I do want to talk about racism um, and black mental health and, and racism existing in every community, but in terms of this radio podcast um, in the LGBTQ community. You know, the way people show racism is different. Some show it through overt actions, language, while some, of course, don't recognize or, in in fact, deny that they're racist. Um, There are also things called microaggressions, and I think there's a different name for that now, but that's smaller, everyday actions to, you know, enact racism, which against black and non-black people of color. Some people do this with very flippant language, stereotyping. And um, especially, I find, in the the LGBTQ community is fetishizing racial preference. And this is often seen on dating apps, more so in the old days when we had newspaper or online dating. People would say, you know, gay white men would say, no fats, no femmes. And lesbians would say, no fats, no butches. And I really think the extension of that is really no blacks, no this, no that. But, no, but people know not to say it, and that's racism. And we can really do better than that. Um, I'm going to throw out some statistics here. The Health and Human Services Office of Minority Health says that black people, black Americans, are 10% more likely to experience psychological distress. And also that black Americans, adults, are more likely to report feelings of sadness, hopelessness, worthlessness than our white adults. Still... In 2018, which is the last time these statistics were reported, almost 19% of white Americans received mental health services, compared to less than 9% of African Americans. Racism and racial trauma continue to affect the well-being of black people, who already face a ton, like a ton of obstacles to receiving mental health treatment. So I want to give some resources today both for black people who might be in need of help, but mostly for us white LGBTQ people who can support and uplift black people's mental health um, by checking out the 
references and resources that are going to be listed on the website, the Left and Straight website. Um, I think there are more than a dozen organizations I've listed after doing some research uh, and research other people did. And I'm going to highlight just a few of them right now. So there's the National Queer and Trans Therapist of Color Network, which is a healing justice organization that actively works to transform mental health for queer and trans people in North America. They also offer a directory to help queer and trans people of color locate queer and trans people of color mental health practitioners, which is really, really important to have a therapist who understands where you're coming from. And they also offer a scholarship fund for folks who can't afford their own therapy. Another organization I found was Black Men Smile, and this is right off their website. Black Men Smile, because we love ourselves. This platform is about radical expressions of self-love. It is about resistance. It is about learning from each other. It is about encouraging one another. It is about transcending. It is about defying gravity, as our ancestors have always done, and leaving a legacy so that generations after us may do the same. There's another organization called Hill House, and House is spelled H-A-U-S. This will be on the website as well, the link. Um, which offers virtual virtual wellness retreat, sound baths, which is an interesting thing that you can listen to sounds that are especially composed to calm your mind, calm your nerves, do other things. They hit certain um, receptors and do, it's amazing. Um, They also have various healing health groups. The Loveland Foundation, um, which I'm a fan of, is a nonprofit that helps black women and girls access mental health resources through its therapy fund. Again, another fund for black women and girls um, who can't afford a full cost of therapy. So this list is going to be on the website. Let's put our money where our mouth is this Pride Month. And again, if you're a black person or non-black person of color in need of help or a white person who can afford to support and in other ways uplift black people's mental health, please check out those resources, support, donate, and seek out other organizations and people to support. It's really important. It's always been important, but now we have to check our racism and really, like I said, put our money where our mouth is. Happy Pride. Coming on today. Guys, be sure to follow Stephanie on social media. She's available on Instagram and Twitter at at S-T-E-P-H-S-910. That's at Steph S-910. Also, be sure to go get her fantastic book that she has co-edited. It's called Headcase, LGBTQ Writers and Artists on Mental Health and Wellness. So, Steph, thanks for coming on. We will see you in two weeks. Let's jump right into the show, guys. We're going to do my interview. Like I said, both these are pre-taped, but I really enjoyed both of them a lot. Uh, Coming up next is Colin Bedell. He is the founder of Queer Cosmos, an amazing website, and his second book on astrology. He's an amazing astrologer. We had a fantastic talk last week. So please welcome to the show. We're going to play a little music break, and then we're going to have a little chat with Colin Bedell. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. I fell in love with a photo Head over heels for a face I'll never know Squeaky clean in a bathrobe Just a hint of the skin that hides below 
I can't help it, I'm already, already daydreaming this fantasy, fantasy, repeating, but nobody's stripping for me, all I got are these eyes looking out of my screen, Down the last couple months, 
Oh, well, I've been currently hunkered uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina, Scott, but I am a born, bred, and buttered New Yorker, so I definitely miss my city, but I'm happy to be kind of quarantined uh, with family here because I have just been receiving so much support from them, which isn't something everyone can save their family, so I'm just really grateful that that's my uh, experience. Yeah. Exactly. Nice. And there's no right or wrong way to do a pandemic. Have you been really creative no. through all this? I mean, you're so busy all the time with your with <laughs> your work and helping others and doing readings. How have you, have you been able to unplug with parents, or have you just been working harder than ever? Uh, I, Scott, your Capricorn son may appreciate this. I have been working harder than ever. Yeah, I, I, I think that if you are involved in the community of personal growth, spiritual seeking, or metaphysics, I think this is really the the time. This is showtime, right? So I've definitely right. been trying to contribute as best as I can with readings and uh, content creation and research and conversations as best as I can, um, which has been really exhilarating. And it, it's definitely exciting because it's meaningful and purposeful work, absolutely. So it doesn't exhaust me too, too much. Uh, but I've also been sleeping like crazy. So I certainly earned the sleep. I can tell you that. <laughs> there you go. I bet you do, my friend. Well, since it's your first time on the show, let's start with a little bit of background. Tell me about growing up in New York. What kind of a kid were you? Um, What kind of a kid was I? You know, I was definitely a renegade. I kind of did my own thing most of the time, but I was was deeply social. I loved being involved with what was happening in my neighborhood and with other friends. And uh, I was probably not involved in a particular, like, community or clique. I'm a Gemini, so we go everywhere and nowhere at the same time, right? But then I actually moved to North Carolina, and I finished uh, high school technically here in Charlotte, right, where I'm currently uh, staying. Uh, And then I moved back to New York uh, the day after high school graduation just because I I love my state. I love my city so much. And I've just been a person Mm -hmm. who's always been fascinated by these conversations around who are we, why are we here, how do we connect better with others, what kind of systems and metaphysical tools and mythologies and evidence-based practicums can we lean on to help us navigate these times? So I've just been really like a perennial Gemini student, you know, trying to seek a lot of answers where I can find them. Yeah. Right. Very cool. I like that. And I love um, your celebration of our queer identity and everything. When did you first come out to yourself and where did you first kind of find your LGBTQ tribe? That's a cool So I came out to myself, I guess, really, uh, when most of us do around five or six, right? But I didn't formally start naming the fact that I was gay until I was 16. And I found that community in my high school, which was Patrick Mepford High School in the eastern uh, section of Long Island. And uh, my people were the artists, you know, the renegades, the mavericks, the, the freaks, you know, and uh, I, I, I was just thinking about how I was able to go to Fire Island, uh, the two queer beaches there, uh, Cherry Grove and the Pines, when I was 16. And uh, a friend of mine who is a lesbian woman, she took me there, and we had a blast. And I, I was, I'm very, very lucky to have had, yeah, to have had that proximity at 16, just to go on the ferry, and the next thing I know, I'm in a room of our own, you know. And I would go to the city often, to the, the more queer-centered spaces like Greenwich Village, downtown, and having that quick access and proximity was instrumental for me to know where I belong. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I want to get into um, not a broad definition of astrology. I think people mostly understand that, but you're working with it. You kind of infuse it with 
um, A Course in Miracles, which I've been a fascinating yeah. studier of. Talk about your brand of astrology and how you fuse those two worlds together. Where did that come to you? Oh, that's, yeah, that's a great question, Scott. Well, I, as you know, having learned the principles of this self-study program of universal spiritual themes, which claims no monopoly on truth or dogma or doctrine or anything like that, it speaks to the fact that each and every one of us are given a highly individualized spiritual curriculum, right? And I believe that the natal chart, which is the snapshot of the universe, the moment each and every one of us took our first breath, so that's why astrologers need the exact date, the time, and the location of the person to understand their chart. I believe that chart tells the very specific story of the highly individualized spiritual curriculum. And I've never experienced any metaphysical or spiritual conversation as strange bedfellows. I think, you know, there's only one truth just spoken in many different languages, and because I am a Gemini, I'm, I find a lot of fascination between how are we saying the same thing using different words? Like, what's the universal diamond at the center of the course, at the center of Catholicism, Hinduism, Judaism, Confucianism, Buddhism, you know, the principles of the East, evidence-based uh, systems? What are we all saying? We're trying to discover the truth. And I actually think that studying The Course in Miracles helped me kind of create my, my very specific framework because much like in uh, theology i think astrology suffers from a little bit of like kind of fatalistic this is the way this is the technique Hmm. and the course of miracles never as you know delivers any message with that tone it's always articulated with hey just thought you might like to know this is the way it is and you can do what you want with it but this is how it works and i i think that language and that system and that style has helped my work extensively because I'm not saying the same thing every other astrologer is saying about, oh, Capricorn is incompatible with Gemini, you know, like according to <laughs> whom, you know what I mean? Like, so right. I would, I, I try to keep more of an open, universally understood, no one has a monopoly on truth kind of space here. And I really believe that's helped me enormously. Yeah. I love that. And how, um, Let's start in the very beginning, because you wrote, like I said, three Mm. great books on the subject. So the very first one (laughs) um, was really just kind of a beginner's guide to it, uh, called A Little Bit of Astrology, An Introduction to the Zodiac. Talk about that. I mean, it's called A Fresh, Accessible Introduction to the Practice. What what is that Reader's Digest overview? What do you hope to impart to people that were just kind of getting into it? Oh, my gosh. Can I just say you have to be? I've only been doing this for like three years, but bar none, you have to be one of the best interviews I've ever experienced. So oh, well, way thank to go, you, Capricorn. Sir. Yeah, 14 minutes in, you know, we got the facts straight. Way to go, <laughs> um, I think what I wanted to do, because I only had a 20,000 word count limit, right, which really is not a lot. That's about an 80-page double-spaced paper, right? So right. not a ton. And, you know, you, you could write a thorough astrology book that's like three times the size of that. So I went in with the primary concern of just trying to help other people see astrology beyond this complex technical system. I I really believe in the power of metaphor, number one, and I believe in the power Mm. of watching astrology take existence in spaces we would never consider, allowing us to have a context around that. Yeah, like I kind of made it more of a – you know, I designed the reader to be a member of an audience within a concert, and I wanted them to see that every single element is a song. And when we remember the way that we have memories attached to song, we remember the story of the zodiac signs. Because I think we connect mm, to stories, and I think nice. we connect to feelings. 
right? Not just like theory and technique. Oh my God. You know, I wanted <laughs> to give it to a place of like the exhilaration of being an air sign when you're driving across the bridge in an open convertible or the earth signs when someone walks into a room and you've been waiting for that person who's responsible and structured to like give you that sense of safety and security that you want, right? Or the water signs when you have the emotional expression, when you're crying over grief, but you're crying over joy, you know, like those, those experiences, I believe tell a greater story than any ancient astrology book ever could. And that's why, that's how my framework took shape in the book. That is amazing. And give everyone a little bit of the concept of as above, as below. How does that go through yeah. your frame of reference, and how should others mm. be seeing that? That's a great, great question. So, right, as above, so below, on earth as it is in heaven, uh, the, the Christian cross and the Jewish star of David. There's many different symbols that speak to the intersection between on earth as it is in heaven, right? And what I think we want to know there is, once again, these stars and these belief systems, they don't compel, they impel us to make different choices based on our free will and what energetic framework is available to us. And I think the, the ultimate capstone, as I personally experience it, right, not saying this is the universal truth, but the ultimate capstone is to make on earth a little bit more like heaven. I mean, looking at the state of the world right now, we're in the midst of exploring the pattern systems of police brutality against unarmed black men. We are seeing an enormous amount of questions around why is white supremacy so institutionalized within our politics? How did this happen? How do we clear it? If we brought forth spiritual considerations around forgiveness, mercy, atonement, reparations, and amends, we wouldn't see this separation. We wouldn't see this attack. We wouldn't see this contempt. And that's really been the primary, I think, inquiry of every spiritual seeker is how do I stand on earth with the thoughts of heaven? How do I make the, the so below a little bit more as above? And I believe well, astrology is just one of many schools that I could do that. Go ahead. Yeah. No, go ahead. You're, you're, I don't want to interrupt your screen. Oh, that's Keep it. Going. I'm all done on my Gemini soapbox. I'd love to pull <laughs> you in. Go ahead. Any feedback about that? <laughs> no, well, I just like that, that we talk about this and we bring that, that astrology is spiritual as well. And I like that you combine those two worlds because they aren't separate, right? None of us is separate. No. We should be able to combine all of this into some understanding and there, no, no two philosophies should be at war that you should all find the harmonies in all of them. Right? Exactly. And again, we, we ought not be saying different things if we're seeking the same spiritual truth. Right. And a friend of mine, her name is uh, Six, the astrologer. She's known as Black Women Cry on Instagram. She made a really clear nuance today about how there are technical astrologers and there are spiritual astrologers. One is not more of a higher merit Mm. than the other, but I am not a technical, you know, this is the method astrologer. I apply it through a more spiritual theme as does Six. And what we're doing there is trying to explore that universal truth that's at the center of all of these great wisdom teachings, all these great secular conversations. And I think that's really beautiful is when we recognize that we're all saying the same thing, just using a different song. Yeah. Oh, love that. Very nice. Very nice. And let's kind of bring that into your second book here. Queer Cosmos um, tagline, the astrology of queer identities and relationships. I love <laughs> that you're concentrating on both of those. You've put together, I mean, I was reading 15 years of work going into this book and talk about what you hope the readers get out of it 
And what did you maybe get out of it that you weren't expecting to find as you were going through everything? That's a really great question. My God, you are so good at what you do. Yes, I cannot <laughs> stress that enough. Okay. Um, what, I, what I want readers to receive from the book is really helpful frameworks and tools and systems around improving the quality of their relational skills and their relational intelligence. Because as Esther Perel reminds us, who's really one of the leading voices right now in relational skills and relational sciences, she reminds us that it's the quality of our life is determined by the quality of our relationships. And we have an enormous amount of listening for astrology right now. And what I would love to see is astrologers not recycle the same outdated notions of good or bad compatibility or these people you're going to have a tough time with. It's like, well, first of all, what is a tough time? How do we exist in a tough time? What are boundaries? What are compromises? And how do we repair them? What is forgiveness? What is apology? Right? How do we actually provide helpful languages and words for people to exist within these dimensions so that they can improve the quality of their relational skills, which improves the quality of their relationship. And that's the sole determiner of their life quality. And I did not go into that book with that kind of mission statement. I didn't even know it kind of appeared to me, right? That's the beauty of research is you have no idea what you're going to find. And what I realized was that, from what people were saying in the field of medical sciences is that loneliness is a global health crisis. And in the absence of connection, there's always psychological suffering and also cardiovascular and cognitive decline. So if people are listening to astrologers right now in in a huge interest, we have to be contributing very helpful and thorough skills. And that's what I want my book to provide for queer people because we've been reinventing relational norms really since since the beginning for eons. And so we don't have to abide by heteronormative and, you know, outdated structures related to monogamy, intimacy, relational configurations. We don't need to do any of that. And so with that, with that open-heartedness in mind, we can bring forth greater tools around chosen family, around improving the quality of our friendships, mm. improving the quality of our first families, and our romantic and sexual lives to really feel the vitality and the fullness that relationships can offer us. I love that. That's so great. And you, you kind of go into shame and self-worth, worthiness. I like. Yes. Um, I think those are two such important topics to create because, I mean, even RuPaul says if you can't love yourself, right, how the hell are you going to love someone else? Oh, so talk about how those – exactly. Um, how, can we, how can we learn from astrology to truth? Yes. Well, I am so, so, so grateful for RuPaul as a luminary. I do want to say that I have a different vantage point, though, around self-love and loving other people, and then we'll go in reverse order. I believe that we learn to love ourselves by loving others and receiving their love. Mm. I, I, okay. My concern with this, and I understand that, like, it's, it's very hard to give what you do not have. So if you, if, if you have zero self-worth, zero self-love, it'll be very difficult for you to be in relationship, but I don't think it's impossible. I think that you can learn in those dimensions, actually. I don't necessarily think it's like that total prerequisite. And that goes back to worthiness because shame loves to tell you, Scott, me, Colin, and everyone listening that because of something we did or something we are, we are fundamentally unworthy of love and belonging, right? So Mm, I got to work on my self-love before I can show up and love you because my shame told me I'm not good enough right now exactly as I am. But worthiness... Uh. Posits a completely different sensibility, which says, actually, 
Your capacity for love and belonging given and received is your birthright. So who are you to act in any other way that's out of alignment with that? Your worthiness for love and belonging is your birthright. So own that truth in your heart. And this is not just me speaking abstract intellectual thought, you know, that's like written from spiritual sects. This is evidence-based research of social workers who have determined that worthiness is the only variable that separates people from receiving courageous connected lives versus those that don't. So this has been already, this has been proven study after research. And I wanted queer people to first acknowledge that there probably was a significant amount of shame that detangled our connection to worthiness, right? And the the consequences psychologically, emotionally, and spiritually of lying to ourselves for however long we were in the closet, like that took a toll. And so if we can use our worthiness to help regulate those experiences and transcend those experiences as best as we can, we then have the strongest foundation to engage meaningfully with the relationships that determine our life quality. So it was really important for me to try to put a lot of truisms just side down and say, well, wait a minute, is this actually true? Right. And that's what I attempted to do in my book. Yeah. Well done on you for that. And what, uh, what kind of reaction has you been, uh, have you gotten from it? Anything that really sticks out in your mind? Someone said, wow, this really mm-hmm. brought me X, Y, Z. What stands out to you from, yeah. the, from the reactions? I think what's meant a lot to me is that people have said that they saw a dimension of their Zodiac sign that they never knew before. Right. Like, hmm. you know, I think, yeah. I think of Scorpio a lot, you know, I think of Scorpio as like, you know, everyone says that they're these like, you know, uh, they have this hungry sexual appetite. All they want to do is that, but I frame them in the space of trust and loyalty and a little bit different of a dimension where they felt like they were seen and heard in my book. I mean, what's a higher honor than that as a writer is to know that like your words were a reflection to other people's existential world. Like that's beyond right. to me. And what I've also appreciated is that when people said, yeah, you know, when we bring it on the coffee table and we compare the compatibility section, we can totally see what you say in our experience, you know, in my relationship with this person. And that's, that's the greatest joy. And I purposefully made sure that in my compatibility analysis, I did not speak on a, on a continuum of like least compatible, most compatible, nothing exists in my work to support that mythology. And I think that felt really good for them because what most of us may remember is just reading astrology books that says, oh, you're in Gemini, tough shit. You're not really compatible with Capricorn. And then, <laughs> right. you know, how, how is that supposed to make us feel? You know, so yeah. just really taking the responsibility of being an author in someone's life and trying to give them tools that uh, clarify their agency and their choice and their open-hearted context in relationship. And when, when readers come back and tell me that they read it and it was beautiful and it helped, I'm just, I feel like all my dreams have come true, honestly. That's fantastic. And you have, of course, the companion website, uh, Queer Cosmos website, where you do weekly, um, weekly astrology readings. You have a lot of great concepts and a lot of different resources there. Uh, Talk about, that's that's a lot of work to keep that up. I mean, I went through that website 
shoot the nail, man. You you have some very great uh, resources you. there. You constantly update it, which a lot of people don't do on their website. Thank you for doing that <laughs> to begin with. Oh, thank um, you. Thank you. It's important. I think, I mean, I've, I've talked about this with a couple other people that the thing that frustrates me about, about websites in today's day and age is when they have a blog on their website and they're not updated or they give it information yeah, right. and it's not updated. And it's real important that I think you really put yourself out there to make sure that you are establishing your identity and you're establishing mm. your beliefs and you're establishing what will help other people. And you want to make sure you give that constant Validity to them through that content. So thank you for doing that, and talk oh, about building this website and this community. Oh <laughs> talk about what the community has meant to you on the website. Yeah, well, you know, it's speaking of it from an astrological point of view, if I may. Um, I have a position in my astrology that what motivates me more than anything is providing spaces and connection for safety and support. And what motivates me for all of my horoscopes is the, the knowing that it lives on in the lives of others and is a part of their weekly routines. And it's a part of their, you know, I, I had conversations with a, uh, with a client who told me that they, she brings it up in her, her weekly women's circle or in their political conversations. I, and then I had a, an email from a professor telling me that I'm now on their syllabus in a philosophy department at Tufts university. I mean, Oh my God, wow. never in a million years. Did I think that that would happen. <laughs> and, you know, to, to see it live on in the lives of others, it's just, it is extraordinary. And I do not take that for granted. You know, I know that every day I wake up and do what I love every single day. And it's exhausting and it's hard. And sometimes I'm like, oh, my God, I'm on a vacation. Like, I can't, I really can't do another reading right now. <laughs> right. This, I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else. And I'm so, so grateful to know to that point of, like, content creators who don't have to update their site. Like, the trust between me and my readers is supreme. You know, we know we got each other's backs. Truly, truly, truly. And because mm -hmm. they have allowed me to be a part of their day-to-day -day lives, I cannot betray that. I cannot harm that trust. And that's why I will do this work for as long as I can. And if things change, I'll let them know. But every single day I am so, so grateful. And I feel an enormous sense of responsibility to make sure that while people are listening to astrologers, that I am contributing the highest quality content that's intelligent, that's adaptable, that is resourceful, that is specific, that is not centered on whiteness or anything like that. And it's just, it is, it is the truest, truest honor yeah i love that well i just want to just to concentrate your your reading for this week and i know you have to do these kind of ahead of time because these things are published and things like that so we're, we didn't have right we ha we don't have the hindsight we have now but just for this week um the overall um forecast was are you sure you're over it are you sure you've moved on <laughs> are you sure you yeah. have closure the Sun-Venus conjunction mm. in Gemini on Wednesday could resurface past patterns or people into the present moment because the planet of love is currently retrograde. Putting the retro in romantic situations, returning to past ideas, patterns, people, and more into the present movement. I mean, it can't be more spot on in what we're living through right now. Have we got over anything? How often has racial and racial injustice been rearing its head over and over and over, over. again? 
have we had closure on it? And obviously we have not. And we are seeing maybe a fruition of that now, or I'm hoping it doesn't go into another cycle. What are you feeling? Right. What are you seeing? And talk about Oof. this premonition that's so freaking right on, my friend. Not premonition. That's a bad word. Uh, but uh, <laughs> no, I reading that, that it's so word. right on. <laughs> yeah, and and I love that you made it much more communal rather than personal because what I think is happening is there just doesn't seem to be among the vast majority of white people in the United States real relational um, racial literacy about what it means to have whiteness, the history and the legacies that we've inherited throughout our throughout our history here on stolen land. Right, there's so much that has to be addressed from the past and Venus retro, right, right? retrograde. So it's about going back into the past and educating ourselves in terms of exactly how the the current state of racial dynamics in the United States got here, right? From the fact right. that there was 300 to 400 years worth of raping, pillaging, and kidnapping of, of Africans to the United States in the African slave trade. And then after the emancipation, the Jim Crow laws and the Ku Klux Klan and the, the institutionalized white supremacy. And only until 1965 was that actually outlawed. I mean, 1965, that wasn't a long time ago. No. And then we didn't even think to, no, we didn't even think to address, like, the economic restitution that would need to have been addressed. You know, I mean, nowadays reparations uh, for a, a historically disadvantaged or marginalized group of people is considered the civilized thing to do. And only until 2008 did the United States actually apologize for their role of slavery, 2008. Mm. And we still haven't even yeah. provided economic restitution. We haven't provided reparations. Like, like, there's just so much work that needs to be done. Um, and if you look at it, I, I think of Germany and its, its quality of, of, of approaching the Holocaust survivors, they gave almost $89 billion to Jewish organizations and Jewish reparations. And then they also educate German citizens all the time in terms of exactly how the Holocaust happened, exactly how the Nazis rose to power, so that it never happens again. Can, can America right. say the same? Do we have any clue about our involvement in the, in the African slave trade? Are right, and we don't and, have and, a true leader either. I mean, we're, no. I, mean oh, I, don't wanna, I don't want to bash on our president, even though I do daily. <laughs> um, but it's like <laughs> no, there yeah. is nobody that's really stepping up to the plate as an ally to the black community. There's some excellent voices in it, but you're not finding right. any allies through our white community, through our LGBTQ community, through Asian American. Right. It's just, it's, it's really tough right now to find a voice well, out there. Well, interestingly, uh, sorry, I, I want to make sure we honor your No, time. go ahead. Go ahead. I, I was just humming. That was an interest hum. Oh, yeah. Uh, interestingly, Back to the Course of Miracles, one of the teachers who's world famous of that of that book, Marian Williamson, went on the Democratic debate stage and spoke about reparations. True. No Very other true. candidate did. Right. So. She had her imperfections in her in her candidacy, which she's been very honest about. And yet a lot of what she was warning against actually came true. But because she's, you know, considered spiritual, they they, you know, slap the anti intellectual crystals and rainbows and orb queen on her, rather than actually hearing that she was saying deep truth. I mean, she brought up Flint, she brought up Gross Point, she brought up she she brought up the fact that because there's economic disparities within certain cities. That's why they're provided with immediate economic relief versus the fact that Flint, Flint, Michigan still has no clean water. 
right? So there are those that are doing it, but I just think we silence them very quickly, right? So, and she is one of the world's leading teachers on A Course in Miracles, and she wrote about reparations in the early 1990s before the United States even apologized. Right. I just happen to think she's done extensively positive work in that arena, and she's always referencing the black scholars and the African-American professors who are doing work in the field of reparations, et cetera, et cetera. But I don't think Trump is a cause. I think he's an effect. And if we go to the Mm. cause, we can't produce the effect, right? Right. And so, of course, I understand, and it's good to, like, vent and let it out, but it would be like getting mad at the symptom and not the disease. The disease is white supremacy. The disease is racism in our system. It's not an event. It is a system that produced Trump, that produced the thinking, that produced the voter turnout for him. Whereas if we go straight to the source and say this needs to stop and what can we do, all hands on deck, then it could be another Trump 50 years from now and no one will listen. That's where we want to go. Oh, right? So because, well said. And that's, and that's what Marianne says all the time is that large groups of people should be considered a national security threat because they're susceptible to ideological capture. Trump walked in and took control of the collective psyche of Americans enraged and upset and economy and they go you know who got a lot of attention the Black Lives Matter movement so we want to make America great again and then it just became off, off they were off they went whereas if we had conversations around okay actual education for white Americans about their involvement in colonization the genocide of the indigenous American and the institutionalized white supremacy and the African slave trade since 1492 right and we train right. our citizens as best as we can on exactly what historically went down there, we would not have the critical thinking to ever vote a person like Trump. So that's where I would like to see us go. And that's the big picture, but I, I'm going to hold on to that vision so we can take the necessary steps to get there day to day. No, well said. I stand corrected because you're right. She has been, uh, been a forefront and, uh, was actually gaining a little traction when she first came into the race as well. Yeah. And until yeah. the voices started kind of silencing. Uh, but you're right. Uh, I had, uh, really kind of dismissed that and forgot about that, but you're a hundred percent. No, that's that. okay. No, 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 that's okay. <laughs> and I just think it's important not that she, and she's not obviously, you know, the founder of the idea of reparations, but she's a student of metaphysics and spiritual seeking, which actually teaches on the notion of atonement and amends. Right. So, you know, countries, just like people, have to atone for their sins, atone for their errors, atone for their crimes against humanity. And what the United States has done, not just from the genocide of the American Indian to uh, the uh, institutionalized white supremacy and the African slave trade for. And then it has to be applied with financial amends because that carries with it moral force. And why has right. Germany skyrocketed since 1941? Because they had a full-blown Maya culpa. And they said, okay, we did this. We deeply apologize. We're going to educate descendants. We're going to take care of it financially. And they did. What has America done? True that. True that. Dot, dot, dot. Wow. Right? <laughs> so yeah, exactly. Don't get me started. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy it. I enjoy having the conversation. <laughs> Um, well, let, let's kind of go from there right now. Talk, give us a generalist uh, view right now. What are you seeing in the coming months here? 
what should we be striving for and as a people that we have some could we all have control over our actions? What actions should we be manifesting to create this? And what tools That's do you see question. being aligned right now from the stars? That is a great question. So what I would do is I would have you check within this Friday during the lunar eclipse in Sag, two weeks later during the solar eclipse in Cancer, and then another two weeks later during the lunar eclipse in Capricorn because we're also in eclipse season right now. So eclipses right. bring forth the things that we are or are not ready, but we have to confront for truth. So just mm-hmm. maybe go within and ask yourself, how's my readiness level for this work? How's my readiness level to improve inclusion and liberation for others? How is my readiness level for activism? How is my readiness level for dealing with white fragility? Because there's a long road ahead. And these eclipses will work like benchmarks, like, honey, you got an A minus, you got a D, you got an A plus, you got to improve, right? Uh, because eclipses will bring yeah. stuff up that we have no clue. So, like, I don't necessarily know if, if it's a manifesting thing as it is so much a reviewing in terms of how is the quality of your personhood right now dealing with not only institutionalized white supremacy, but we're also in, still in the midst of a global quarantine and a global pandemic, right? So there's just so much. And who, who are you choosing to be while you're in the space of what's happening? Are you emotionally self-indulgent? Do you numb out? Do you over-talk? Do you not speak up? Where are you? What's right. going on? And then you'll get, you'll get the results on those three eclipses, mark my words, June 5th, June 21st, and July 4th. Well, I am so glad we have you here the day before the, oh. our first eclipse here so we can, uh, can yeah. kind of take stock of that. This is good timing, my friend. I am so happy to have you talking about this. Oh, well, I'm, I am so happy to have had the pleasure of your very pointed and specific and open-ended questions. Like, you are, you have a gift for this, Scott, truly. And I just wanted to tell you that. You are so good at what you do, and you really create a, a beautiful space for dialogue to emerge. So whenever, however you want me back, you just let me know, and I'll make the time. <laughs> oh, I will hold you to that, my friend. Thank you, yes. and I appreciate totally. it. I want to talk. Um, I want my listeners to go back at the first two books. I'm really excited about your next series, though. You've started with your own symbol, Gemini, um, going into real in-depth on each um, sign. Talk about Mm. where this idea came from and where you're going from here after Gemini. That's a great question. You know, I haven't even thought too much about that, although I did think, wow, I haven't written a book in a minute, <laughs> but I, I, you know, I don't, I don't know yet. Actually, I'm kind of just because both of the, all three of those were revealed to me, and I actually like that a little bit more. I didn't submit my manuscripts to publishers; they contacted me, which I'm really grateful for. It, but I do think that that's the way I'm going to keep it. Whereas it's like, unless I'm hit with a eureka, oh, you know, but no, I haven't right. even thought of that yet. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. I love that. I love that they're that it's it's manifesting that way towards you. That just makes it so more right. special. That's amazing. Without a doubt, very, rather very than cool. me like having to, you know, get all aggressive and email them and go to the networking event. No. Mm-mm. Right. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, I'm so excited for my listeners hearing this today. Um, pay attention 
to these next couple of clips is starting tomorrow. And yeah. Colin, do me a favor. Let them know where they can find this amazing website, where they can follow you on social media and become as enamored with you as I am, my friend. Oh, my gosh. Well, you can follow me at Queer Cosmos. That's uh, my social media name, so Q-U-E-E-R-C-O-S-M-O-S. And that's where I am on QueerCosmos.com and all other places. And I'm enamored with you, my new Capricorn buddy. So thank you for having you me. Go. It's been so much fun. Thank you. It has been my absolute pleasure. Stay on the line for me. Guys, we're going to play a little song. I'll be back on the other side. And you are listening to Left of Straight Show right here on the Left of Straight Radio Network. This time I won't idealize you. I won't throw my hands up over my head and cry. Still I know you are the one and I still taste you on my tongue And I would be fortunate to lie with you One more night I know it won't take much time now I just take one look inside your eyes and I'm flying What am I still doing here? I know you will soon disappear But I still hold on to spend time with you One more night And turn all night till you come closer. Feeling you inside me over and over. Still, I know you are the one. I still taste you on my tongue, and I would be fortunate to lie with you. weekend get ready again it's coming up in just a few short weeks guys i'm going to get ready to play my next interview this is with kelsey zipchin this is another one from a couple weeks back that we had to postpone a bit and kelsey was outside for the first sunny day they had in toronto for a while so we have a little bit of wind sounds in the background so prepare for a little bit of windy sounds but i had a fantastic interview again kelsey is an amazing teacher on set to all these great young actors on some of your favorite television shows. So we had a fantastic evening to talk about that. She's also a fantastic aide to her husband, Tanner, and a great ally to her community. So let's go ahead and play one more song. And when we come back, we're going to be talking to Miss Kelsey Zipchin. You're listening to the Left of Straight show 
right here on the Let the Straight Radio Network. Father in the sky and they're starting to align. I see you passing by and we're slowing down the track. Now my love's flashing by. All I see is flashing light. Cause you're right here by my side. Can you feel it come alive? If this were a love song, would you be mine? I just can't get you off of my mind. And I think about you. Lots of fun. 
And speaking of beautiful, my next guest is beautiful inside and out. She's making her very first appearance here on the Leftist Straight Show. She's a great LGBTQ ally and has been somewhat been on some of my favorite shows like DC's Titans, Lock and Key, The Umbrella Academy on Netflix, American Gods on Stars. But no, not in front of the camera. Any trained monkey can do that. She does the hard work teaching some of the best and brightest young actors on set for a very well-rounded experience. You can also say it's a family affair. She's also been a bit of a wizard behind the curtain as her husband was the face of the Canadian pre-shows in one of their biggest cinema chains, and is an amazing entertainment host in his own right. I'm so excited to have her on the show, so please welcome Miss Kelsey Zippy. How are we doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I am having a great day here in Northeast Ohio. How is everything up in beautiful downtown Canadaville? It, it is finally, dare I say, a bit warm out. Uh, we had snow a few weeks ago, surprisingly. And uh, oh, no. I'm finally sitting outside enjoying some sun, so I will take it. There you go. Well, talk about your corona quarantine time a bit. I mean, you've been on hiatus, too, as most of the sets you've worked on has had to shut down, and along with shepherding around a new puppy and an older puppy, your <laughs> husband has been doing some amazing Instagram yeah. lives. How are you holding up? Oh, I, it's, it's going well, I guess, as well as can be expected. I mean, a bit crazy but the adjustment period of you know kind of thinking that this might last a week or two and just looking to sort of fill your time I mean that passed a bit we've sunk into a bit of a routine of course like you said Tanner's been doing a lot of the Instagram lives almost daily since this quarantine started so one of those takes research and, and setup and someone to keep the dogs busy and monitor levels for sound and light and everything while they're happening so that generally takes up a a couple hours of my day for sure i bet goodness gracious well i always like to get a little background on my first time guests let my listeners know a little bit about you where did you grow up what kind of a kid were you and what did you first want to be when you grew up oh wow good questions okay um well i grew up in uh, a town called regina Kind of funny sounding. I know we get a lot of laughs for that. Regina in a province called Saskatchewan, which is about, I would say, about four hours north of Minot, North Dakota, is where I grew up. Oh, what kind of kid I was. Uh, the quiet, studious type for sure. Uh, loved to mm. read, loved everything about school. So I guess it's no surprise that the first thing that I wanted to be and what I did become was, was a teacher, primarily in English. Nice. Is what I started out as. Yeah. I like it. Let's talk about the preset teaching because I was going over my research, as my my listeners know I do, and I found a lot of amazing stuff. You have a pretty impressive resume here, my friend. I mean, okay. not only do you teach English and math and science and Spanish, you were a backstage crew for three musicals. You coached a wrestling team or was a teacher advisor. Where did you find the time? Oh, my gosh. You have done your research. That's going back. Well, I started teaching in 2010. Um, and I guess as as a, especially as a beginning teacher, you just, you find the time. You make it. You give up sleep. You give up friendships. You give up eating, whatever it takes to get your foot in the door 
get your classes, try to get a full course load. You just you do what it takes. So if that means that they say in a staff meeting they need a wrestling coach and you've never done a day of wrestling in your life, you put your hand up and say, <laughs> I guess I'm the new wrestling coach. So that's so how that one came to be. And then from there, I just I filled whatever spots needed filling. So I think that really helps with what I'm doing now to just be open-minded and take things as they come, be flexible. Um, and that led to, yeah, seven years I spent in the classroom um, teaching, yeah, mostly English, bit of, bit of science, math, Spanish, again, whatever, whatever they asked me to teach, I said, yep, when do I start? <laughs> there you go. That is fantastic. And uh, you even, like, were really part of getting technology going in a lot of things, too. I saw you were a founding member of a technology integration team and really got people involved on computers. That's had to help a lot. Talk about learning all those skills. Oh, yeah, that was, I mean, I guess I went to school. I feel like I sort of missed a lot of the technology ways in my own education, you know, secondary and post-secondary. Um, so when right. I got into the classroom, everything felt really new and foreign to me. And I didn't want to be one of those teachers that just thought it was scary, therefore it was terrible and didn't belong in the classroom. I looked at what the kids were doing, what they were using, and saw it as a way to engage them. So I thought, I want to, I want to learn about this stuff. And fortunately, some of my other colleagues did too, and we sort of formed this, we called it a tech catalyst team, where we would kind of each research one thing, bring something to the table, teach each other about it, and then try to use it. You know, start really simple. My first thing was to start with just a blog, a, a homework blog that I could tell parents what was going on in the class and um, post assignments for kids who missed school. Really simple like that. But then that turned into, you know, running a Twitter account for my class and eventually integrating devices in the classroom too. So, yeah, it was really, really foundational for, for a lot of what I did the next several years of my career. Aboriginal Canadian literature. I have no idea what that kind of study is. Uh, tell me what that means. Well, um, that is the literature written by uh, Aboriginal or Indigenous Canadians, Native Americans, as, as you know them down there. Um, that became a really big part of my teaching practice, and I went on to do my grad studies in it actually afterwards as well. Uh, but again, another thing that I felt was really missing from my own education, um, including my post-secondary education, until I thought it out myself, was hearing from those Native Canadian voices and hearing that perspective. Um, so when I got into teaching, and the first school I was in was about 30% uh, Indigenous population, I thought, I, I need to do better. I need to know more. I need to have this representation in my class. So I started learning about some of our native Canadian writers and their contributions to literature and incorporating their voices into what I was teaching. Um, and it just became a huge passion of mine. I found so much beauty, um, so much history, so many things that I was never taught that are shocking to actually go back and learn. Um, and I just, again, carried that with me throughout my teaching practice and into going back to school myself to study it um, at the master's level. That is amazing. I mean, here in 
uh, the states here, we have been so bad to our Indian population, uh, Native Americans here, and I wish we really would study that history a lot more. But that's amazing to, to do those writings. Anything that you were shocked by or what, what fascinated you the most in these studies? Um, that's a great question. Uh, it was, so my last class of my undergraduate education degree, I took uh, an, a Native Studies course. I, uh, I think it was, it might have been mandatory. Either way, I will fully admit I took it begrudgingly. I felt I had to, so I did it. <laughs> And in, and in one of the first classes, I learned about Canada's history of residential schools, which was the policy that forced uh, First Nations and Inuit Canadians to send their kids to residential school and to learn uh, only speak English. Um, the conditions were terrible. There was a lot of abuse. Many of them never made it out of their lives. And this is something that we just never learned about, we never talked about. And in fact, the last residential school closed in 1996, I want to say, not far from where I grew wow. up. And I sat there like in complete shock and denial and thought this can't be real. This is one of my last months of my education and I'm just learning this now. So that was shocking. And, it, and it's, we've, since then, that would have been uh, about 2009 or 10, and since then, Canada's embarked on a journey that we call Truth and Reconciliation, where we're bringing this story, this buried history to light, not just the residential schools, but our legacy of missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, many things that have gone on, and uh, trying to acknowledge the truth and move forward in a spirit of, of reconciliation, um, which I, I hope the same for America one day. It's a long process that will take many generations to, to heal and move on with. But yeah, that's, right. that, that would be the most, the most shocking. There have been many shocking moments since, but that was definitely a life-changing moment for me. Wow, that sounds like amazing. And as you say, it's great to hear what's happening now and that Canada's actually putting that step forward. I can only hope that we can do it here for sure. That is so cool. Mm -hmm. Well, I also want to talk about during your school time. I mean, I talked about in the beginning that you have a great heart. Um, I saw that you helped organize, uh, you were coordinator of a food drive that raised like over 30,000 pounds of food between three schools. I think your school alone raised almost 20,000. Talk about what the importance was for you in giving back and helping arrange things like that. Well, yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. My first school that I started in was much more of an inner city community. Um, and then when I moved, uh, I spent my last four years of teaching in a city two hours north where Tanner was from uh, called Saskatoon. And when I moved there, it was like complete opposite, very affluent school, much bigger population. And they were doing some incredible initiatives to help out the community. And one of these was called Halloweening for Hunger. So, I mean, we had about, at times, almost a thousand students and like half of them would give up their uh, Halloween night of trick-or-treating or whatever parties they were going to go to and go out and trick-or-treat for food for the food bank. Um, and it, it was a massive undertaking. Wow. It would take probably about 10 staff members and multiple student volunteers to collect the food as it came in and organize it, uh, find ways to store it. And, and like I say, hundreds of kids going out doing this 
um, it was just incredible and eventually earned a lot of awards and recognition for the, for the school and the students um, because of it. That is so cool. Good on you guys for that. Idea, and I can't take the credit for it. It existed before I came along, but I was so like, yes, I'm jumping right in and getting on board with this because I've, I've seen the other side of it too. The school I was in before, many of those students used the food bank. So now I had a chance mm. to, to go out and collect and, and give back and make sure that those students were looked after. And we're finding that now during the pandemic here how much importance that food banks are. I know that Feeding America is doing a great job here. Your group there, what is the Canadian group that does all that feeding? Uh, well, we have multiple food banks, and, like, we have a breakfast club of Canada, uh, lots of lots of different programs like that. All right. Yeah, I remember that Schitt's Creek, uh, Dan Levy was doing something for a combined project for one of the food banks of Canada and for Feeding America, which was an amazing project, but it, we're just finding such a need right now with people oh, being yeah. out of work and all this happening that it's it's so important. So I'm glad there's been programs in place like that in the past, and hopefully we can keep on with something like that, right? Absolutely, yeah. I, I want to start transitioning into the onset teaching, but let's start at the beginning of this journey with your husband. You guys, you have to check out Tanner's interview. Go to the Leftist Right Show archives, and you can learn all about Tanner. But we'll talk about him for a couple seconds as it relates to you um, he was working in radio and decided to enter a contest for a chance to be this major Canadian Cineplex company kind of spokesperson at the beginning of the movies. The thing I love about the most is when talking about it, I, I heard you say, like, he's always got a project or an idea or something that he's working on, and I've just gotten so used to being like, yep, tell me where you need to go and what I need to do and what costume we're wearing. Uh, that's an interesting start. How did you guys meet, and how did you get to that point in life? That's hilarious. <laughs> um, we actually met. I had Tanner come in and talk to my class uh, when I was teaching creative writing in 2012. Um, I, I found the curriculum to be really old and outdated, just short stories and poetry, and that only appeals to about half the kids. So I thought, how can I modernize this a bit? And I thought, hey, advertising and radio and things like that, that's a bit more uh, modern by 2012 standards. And so a right. friend of mine said, I know, I know a radio DJ who also writes ads and voices ads. If you ever want him to come in and talk, let me know. I said, perfect, yeah, give me his information. And so emailed him, and, and that is, that's how we met. Um, and that was, I guess, eight years ago now. Uh, yeah. Very cool. And, what was the first date? Was he a good first date or was he a cheap first date? He was a very good first date. Um, I will admit I had a certain bias in my mind about what local radio DJs might be like. So I wasn't uh -oh. too enthused <laughs> and thought maybe he's going to have this ego. He's going to think he's this hot shot. So I dawdled. I finished watching a Blue Jays game before I actually finally <laughs> went out to where we were supposed to meet and I was late and he was totally okay with it and uh, we just we just had a hilarious fun time we hit it off right away all the same interests you know pop culture and 90s trivia and I remember his phone ringing at one point and it was the full house theme song and I just died laughing and thought I was completely <laughs> wrong about this person I need, I'm the one with the ego here, oh my goodness. 
and I guess that was kind of our, our first date, basically, without knowing that that's what it would amount to. That is awesome. So this contest happens, and it turns out it's right in the middle of wedding planning for you guys. Talk about how all that came about. I understand you were, like, voting two days before the wedding or something, but talk about how this combined into one huge event. Oh, it was quite something. Um, Yeah, he just, like you said before, he always kind of has something that he's working on, something that he's scheming or planning. And so he vaguely told me about this contest that his friend had told him about and he was going to write this script what I need to do with anything and then eventually he said oh, yeah okay we'll bring your Jurassic Park costume and because we had dressed up as that for Halloween conveniently the October before and meet me at the radio <laughs> station at this time I was like oh man I don't even want to know but okay here we go and uh, it turns out we were filming this sort of one take walk and talk two minute audition video him to possibly become the next pre-show host in Canada and uh, he didn't have a script he just told us where to go what to say you know when to walk when to stop we did two takes and that was it and um, he submitted it made it to the top 10 right away when they narrowed it down from about 300 submissions Uh, he was in the top 10 and then I would say about six weeks of voting and challenges ensued from that point on, um, which, yes, was throughout June and July, and we got married August 2nd. So that How very do you much... juggle that? How do you juggle fittings <laughs> and tuxedos and wedding plans and invitations? How do, you, how do you make all that happen? You're a Wonder Woman. <laughs> well, thank you. I think it goes back to that, that teacher training you know like I said where you just do you you make the time you make sacrifices and organization is key relying on the good people around you um yeah we we made it work fortunately we had a very you know low-key wedding a smaller low-key wedding so it didn't require too much on the planning side of things um but yeah this contest ended up being way more than we ever imagined and eventually when he made it to the top three it was, you know, the, the guy from small town Saskatchewan versus two people from Toronto. And so we didn't really think he had a, a shot uh, because in Toronto. So why would they pick the kid from way out west in the prairies? So we knew it was <laughs> going to be a, a challenge and we needed to rally the troops. Fortunately, he's in the media. He has connections with all the local TV stations and he called in every single one of them trying to get his name out there and get some support behind him. And... Yes, it was it was very busy, and I dare say it hasn't slowed down since that point. <laughs> but we made I it bet right, we'll voting right until the day before the wedding, for sure. I bet. And then I read, like, two days later after your wedding is when he actually gets this. How? What did you first think? It's like, um, there's a, like what, as the saying goes, behind every great man is a better woman. What did you think this was going to do to your life? Were you excited about it? Were you kind of like go with the flow? Or how did you feel about this two days after your wedding? I I guess it was just so full on in the moment um, as we were trying to win this thing that I didn't stop to think about the other side of it, sort of saying, like, you 
you better win this thing because it has cost me months <laughs> of my life. If you don't win it, this could be the fastest marriage in history, I think. But um, I remember when he actually did win, having this moment of, like, happiness for him, but then this immediate wave of, I'm not ready for this. I'm not, I'm a very private and introverted person. I'm not ready for this publicity mm. in our lives and the changes it will bring. I never imagined it would mean we'd be moving across the country and we'd be doing what we are now, but just in that small, my small sense of the world at that time, I just thought I'm not, I'm not ready for, you know, things like internet trolls and, you know, <laughs> whatever, whatever it brings with it. Oh my gosh, I was right. a bit concerned, but also thought like, wow, I've been a wife for two days and now it's all about to change again. <laughs> Who knows what it's going to look like, but, but Tanner always puts his whole heart into things and works very hard and he only takes things on if, if they mean a lot to him. So that's enough to, to have my support. Well, there you go. That's so well said. And talk about how this transition now came to being an on-set uh, movie tutor, a movie teacher. Talk about that and uh, the challenges of it and tell give us a little background of what it's like to actually be on set with these things and having to have the future of these youth that hopefully do good in the theater, but it's nice that they have a little bit of background of what's happening in the world. Uh, talk Absolutely, about that. yeah. It's a, it's a career that I've, I never knew existed. I didn't have any inclination that this is what I was going to do, but I can say especially now that I can't do it because the film industry is uh, halted. Um, but I, I really do love it, and I hope to be doing it for a long time. But that, it came about because I've been working with alongside Tanner probably since 20... Well, honestly, within a few months of meeting him, I was helping out with stuff that he would be doing for radio. So I guess it started there, <laughs> and then he started doing Comic-Con, and I would be going along to his panels, you know, helping him prepare, research, think of interview questions, get him a sandwich, you know, in between his interviews that he would do, <laughs> make sure he was eating, um, help with hair and makeup and iron shirts backstage, whatever it was. So that really led to... You were a PA before a PA to, was cool, huh? <laughs> honestly, exactly. Before I even knew what that was. Um, and then when we moved here, his, his work with the theater got busier and busier um, but then other things started to come in as well and he was having a tough time managing it all so that's where I stepped in with um, helping to reply to emails and organize his schedule and try to get some sponsorships and endorsements for various things and whatever it was I, I just sort of learned and figured it out as, as we went and um, one of those things that I would do would be to sometimes go along to some of his junkets with him where he would be interviewing you know actors from films and at one of those I met a publicist from Disney and she said hey you're a teacher we have a child actor coming up can you work with him while he's here and I oh, said wow. absolutely I would love to do that and then I quickly learned that there was no way that I could do that because I needed to have California certification and three years later I'm still working to get those specific help. That oh, started me on this path of learning that this is a job, this is a career, and I'm in a city where 
this is actually a niche that I could get into now. Uh, so I spent sort of the next year getting my ducks in a row, uh, getting an American teaching certification along with my Canadian credentials so that I can now teach um, children from anywhere in North America except the state of California because I'm still not done that piece yet. Um, but yeah, it sounds it, it like really California. Awesome. I live there. I know. <laughs> sounds like them. Oh, is it ever? It is. It is policy there, and right, rightfully so because we've seen what happens when children are not looked after on set. Very true. So I can see why they have clamped down on things. But yeah, I've been doing that for I guess over two years now. That is amazing, and it's it's such good work. It's really important job. Uh, it's taking you on some amazing experience. Like I, I have actors on all the time, of course. Are you bound by the same like non-disclosure things, and you have to be all that because you're around the set side, or do you just to stay pretty much outside of it? What what is your role while you're there on set? Are more um, strict and upfront about it. Um, I did a production for Apple TV Plus um, called Ghost Writer and they were very like there was a lot of the confidentiality they did background checks on uh, on everybody who set foot on that set it was it was a very you know safe feeling place but also we couldn't talk about anything that we saw um, and others are a bit more I don't know if they maybe overlook the role of the teacher sometimes they forget <laughs> that we're there <laughs> but but I, I'm, I'm trained well enough in all this to know that what you see on a set, what you learn in this industry, you, you don't talk about until somebody important has given you the green light to talk about it. And especially as the teacher, you spend a lot of time with the kids. Um, right. And often you're the only person that they are really down, you know, that they are not acting around, that they can kind of let down their walls, and they might talk to you about stuff that's concerning them or bothering them or, or ask if you can rehearse a scene with them that they're worried about or whatever. So you, you are going to learn a lot of stuff in that role. So it's important for, um, you know, the, the child's well-being, let alone the production's well-being, that you, you keep a lot of that to yourself along the way for sure. Yeah, that was going to be one of my next questions. I'm sure that there is a lot of confidence involved with the kids because I mean you're you're the one stabilizing force there do you feel that responsibility because now seeing all this stuff that happens around the entertainment industry do you kind of carry that weight a little bit or do you just kind of make sure you give them the best education the best experiences you can give them yeah I, I mean giving them the best education and experience is certainly my, my primary goal and, and giving them as real world of an education as they can is important because often they live in a very non-realistic world, especially the ones who've been doing this for a while now. But yeah, there certainly is a weight that comes with it. Like these, depending on where they're from and how old they are, they can work up to, you know, an 11, 12, 13 hour day by the time they're 17. And, you know, even at eight, ten years old, they could be working eight-hour days. I'm wow. speaking for myself. I certainly wasn't doing at that age while balancing <laughs> school and friendships. And then you add in things like social media and often these kids have big followings. And, and there's just a lot, a lot of pressure and a lot of responsibility on some very small right. sh- 
shoulders. So you do feel that weight in helping them navigate some of that stuff. But I've, I've also been fortunate to work with very wonderful parents, too, um, that are very supportive and we feel more like a team. Um, so I, I, I do feel weight, but it's never been a situation where, you know, it's been sort of parental neglect and I've felt in an awkward situation or I've had to step in and teach things parents aren't. I find a lot of the parents to be very responsible, very respectful, very helpful, and they adapt well to the, the stress of life in this entertainment industry. Oh, that's great. I love hearing that. What is what's been one of your most challenging experiences on a set and what's been one of your most fun experiences on a set? Great question. Uh, Well, the challenging ones on days when there are stunts, Um, especially when I'm working with American minors, uh, SAG, the Screen Actors Guild, requires that uh, the teacher is also the welfare monitor for the child. So I literally go everywhere that the child goes and I use the term child loosely because that includes like 16, 17-year-olds who definitely mm. don't want someone following them around everywhere, but that's, that's the rule. <laughs> so uh, those days when we're doing, you know, things like working with a trapeze or there's an explosion and glass going to be flying or there's something kind of gory or gruesome going on, that, that can be challenging because I need to go in and review the safety measures first, work with the props or the stunts department to see how this is going to work, where the child will be standing, make sure that we're using, you know, fake rubbery glass and nothing can possibly harm them, go over everything with the child as well so that they know that, you know, that that bloody body part is, is fake or that the creepy uncle is actually a really nice person <laughs> and let, let, the, let the actors meet each other first. Um, all, there's a lot of responsibilities that... Um, yeah, that's interesting. Not, I never thought about that. Yeah, you're not trained for it. You're not prepared for it. You have to take them as they come. And in the film industry, no day, no two days are alike. So you never really know what you're walking into. Um, right. But as long as everybody's on board with putting the child's welfare and safety first, it all goes really well. Sometimes there can be a bit of tension, too, on the set that you have to navigate if... Um, you know, directors don't necessarily like to be told that a scene can't happen the way that they envision it, but sometimes mm-hmm. that's what needs to be, some changes need to be made uh, for the sake of the child's comfort and safety. So those, those can be the most challenging days, too. Um, and then fun. Um, honestly, like, even the most challenging days are so fun because you're right in there watching all of these brilliant minds bring these beautiful scenes together. And some of the shows that you mentioned, like Titans and Umbrella Academy and Lock and Key, like the, the, the elaborate set and just the way it all comes together, it's, it's incredible to be up close, seeing it right up front. And seeing these, these children that I work with, you know, were goofy in the classroom, learning math, science, maybe they're fighting you on it a bit, or they're tired, whatever, and the second they get on set, they turn into this other being, this this very person that I I don't, I see different talents in the classroom, but to see them turn that on when they get on set, it's just, it's unbelievable, Um, and I'm, I'm a, 
I started working in movie theaters as soon as I turned 16 and could get a job. So I've always been a movie nerd myself and to now be a part of the film industry and combine that with my passion and education, just it means that every single day is going to be fun no matter what. And sometimes I get to travel too for work and experience new places that I might not have gone to otherwise. So yeah, I don't know if I have a specific fun moment off the top of my head. It's hard to think of one in particular. <laughs> it sounds like there's quite a few. I, I'm, I'm very happy for that. Now, you talk about this experience of being the welfare also of the child. Does that mean, is there normally more than one teacher per so many kids? Or how many, I mean, I don't know what your cast are. I don't think they're all that young. I think you have a lot of people that look young that are over uh, 18. But how many teachers do they have on a set if there's um, a certain number of cast members that are underage? Yes, that's a great question. Yeah, usually, usually they will... Uh, hire, you know, 18 plus to play, you know, high school students for that exact reason, then they're not dealing with school and having to work that into the day, because SAG requires three hours a day of school, and if you're working with a minor who can only do eight hours on set, um, total, including school, you've now only got five hours to shoot all their scenes that day, so if you can um, avoid school, that's certainly preferable on most I know because it just makes the logistics easier for everyone. Um, but typically, it's about one to four or five uh, main cast per one teacher, and then one to ten background or minor characters per uh, teacher. So okay. um, it will depend. If you've got like an Umbrella Academy, um, the one minor on that show, he's got a full-time teacher, wonderful friend of mine that works primarily just with him because whenever there's a spare second in his schedule, he needs to be doing school because he's in every episode, most of the episodes, right? So you can't right. have the teacher off with someone else when he might have a window to get school in. So it, it all depends. Um, other shows where there's groups of kids and they kind of come on and offset together, you can have more of them together and just get away with one one teacher. Nice. Well, thank you for bringing us a little behind the curtain on it. I think it's fascinating, and it's such an important job to do, so thank you for doing that. Let's talk about, um, for you, as with either Tanner or yourself, being kind of a, a movie fan, as I am, and it sounds like you are, what has been one of your fans? No one had Tanner on. He's a Jurassic Park guy, so he loved going oh, to Hawaii. Yeah. Any set that you've been really excited to go to? Have you got to do any of your dream locations or sets? Uh, well, with him, definitely Jurassic Park was, oh, my gosh, like on a bucket list that I never even knew I had because I didn't know you could just <laughs> go to Kualoa Ranch in Hawaii and experience it. But then to experience it with the cast there was just, oh, my gosh. It was it was an amazing experience. And I'm a huge Jurassic Park fan, too. We had elements of it worked into our wedding. Um, we just love it so much. But in, in my own work, in terms of set, um, I guess being on the Umbrella Academy set was just pretty awesome. Um, seeing seeing how it 
a lot of the behind the scenes of how these things work, how some of the stunts work, uh, the wardrobe, the costumes, uh, was, was one thing, but also just um, meeting and, and seeing the cast interact with people and seeing how lovely they really are. Um, that they really do feel like a, a big family in a lot of ways. Uh, and that's right. the show that I'm a fan of season one. So getting to work on season two was like, it was so exciting. Um, but otherwise, a lot of the shows I've done have been brand new shows. Um, like Lock and Key. No one knew what that was when I started working on that one. And another one that'll come out soon called Ginny and Georgia uh, that was filmed here that, again, it's a it's a brand new show. So uh, that ends up being most of what I what I work on here. Oh, another one was Suits. I did a few days on Suits, and I was a huge fan of that show for many years before ever even moving to Toronto and learning that they filmed it here. So... Um, Getting to, to be on that. that. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a really oh, fun cool. set. That often they don't have kids on there, but when they do flashbacks and they've got young Harvey or whatever, then right. you know they need to bring in a kid and a teacher with it. So, yeah. I need a Donna in my life. I love that show. Very fun. Uh, <laughs> don't we that. all? <laughs> I'm mm-hmm. telling you. Oh my God. <sighs> Well, we got to start wrapping it up, Kelsey. Um, tell me about what your goals are. Do you have any um, goals for yourself for the future here? I mean, Tanner's in transition a bit right now. Do you know what you want to do? Do you guys work on a game plan together? Yeah, I want to, while I'm itching to get back on set and back into the classroom as soon as we're able to, and my goal for this year is to complete that California certification because it's been many years of going back to school and taking, I think I wrote 12 different exams. Um, and the final wow. piece is that I need to go to California and take a course, and that's supposed to happen in August. So every day I say a little prayer that the border will open and that I can get to this course and finish off that last piece because uh, they only offer it once a year. So okay. I'm really, really hoping that is my goal because then once I have that California piece, I'll be able to teach that many more students and have more work and some of the, the bigger jobs. And, and just I'm someone who's always learning, always expanding my repertoire of skills and credentials. So uh, I just want to keep, keep going, keep learning more and, and keep getting more experience and, and more work as soon as I'm able to. So that's really that is my big goal for the year at this point. It's funny how goals change in the face of a pandemic. <laughs> That's true, right? Oh my goodness, I guess. Wow. I know it's it's, it's a wild time. I'm back and we'll talk off there. I'm going to be bringing my show for a month of shows in California for uh, July and August and I'm really hoping that same thing that it's kind of open up there. Because it, it's, a, it's a weird time. I mean, I could get there. I don't have to cross a, a border or anything. But it's just, I don't know what's going to happen. My friends in L.A. say a lot of the bars and restaurants aren't opening until mid-July. And it's like my show's going to be there July 12th through August 12th. It's like, please, something be open that I can do on there. So it's, it's exactly. going to be interesting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, isn't it? Well, thank you for everything you're doing for these kids. Thanks for a fun interview. I appreciate you so much. Do you have a social media you like people to follow, or do you just kind of like being behind the scenes and everyone else's? Uh, 
yeah, I do. I do have social media. It is. Um, I do have it set to private, but uh, I always. I, that doesn't mean I don't accept uh, requests. But it is Kelsey K E L S E Y, and my maiden name O B Y R N E. So you can find me there, Kelsey O'Byrne. I have an IMDb page as well if you want to look at some of the past projects I've been a part of. And that's under Kelsey's Zipchin, so you can go, go find that too. There you go. Well, enjoy your sunshine in Canada. I appreciate you being on the Left of Straight show, my new friend. Oh, yeah, great. Thank you so much for having me. Like you said, I'm usually much more behind the scenes, so I was quite flattered to get a request of my own to be on a podcast. <laughs> Well, I appreciate your time, and you are worth every second. I think you're going to be a fascinating story for my listeners. Stay on the line for me. Guys, play out with a little song here, and I'll be back in just a little bit. You're listening to the Left of Straight show right here on the Left of Straight radio network. Easy to get off track. Easy to lose your way. In a world that makes you believe There's no time to wait That you gotta have it all Better have it all Better not slow down Looking ahead got me looking In circles Life with a plan at first Seems hopeful you 
righty, guys. We are back. That wraps up another show in the can. Thank you so much to my guest, Stephanie Schroeder, with her fantastic Mental Health Minute. Be sure to look for those links on the website tomorrow. Colin Bedell, astrologer extraordinaire, such a fun time with him, and the lovely Miss Kelsey Zipchin. Uh, we're proud to have any of my kids in her care. So great show today, guys. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks so much for tuning in. We'll be back with the fifth and final show for the week tomorrow at 6 o'clock Pacific, 9 o'clock Eastern time. A couple of more great interviews. And, of course, we'll start off with a Friday Fitness Minute. This week, our special correspondent, Jake Dean Taylor, is taking the wheel once again. So that'll be fun. And then my two interviews. I'm so excited to bring on singer-songwriter Debbie Holiday live in the first hour. We're going to be talking her experience with Black Lives Matter. And, of course, she's been associated with our friends at Sorted Lives. She has an amazing career of her own, so we'll talk about her career afterwards. And then my second guest coming in the second hour is Jaron Renfeld. He's an actor and theater creator, done some amazing theater work in Boston, New York, uh, actually, he is the partner to Sam Light, who we had on a couple of weeks ago, and both an amazing power couple in acting, and Jared was just a joy to talk to, so that'll be tomorrow night in the second hour. So looking forward to that, and I hope you guys have a great evening. We'll see you tomorrow. Be sure to follow me on the Instagram and Twitter, at Left of Straight, always spelled L-E-F-T, O-F-S-T-R and the number eight. On the Facebook, the page for the show is Left of Straight Show. And my personal Facebook profile is Scott Fullerton. It's a public one, so you can send me a friend request. Be more than happy to say hello. And the website is www.leftofstraight.com. Thanks so much for being part of it. We have the Big Gay Road Trip a month from tomorrow. I'll be in Palm Springs, so we're going to start promoting that heavily starting the next week here. And we will talk to you tomorrow. Have a great evening, everyone. Bye-bye.